0: Hi, my name is Brian. Welcome to the second episode in the podcast, Homo Deus, Humanity's Evolution from Social Institutions to World Peace. In this episode, we talk about the relationship between humans and animals, and the role religion played in human evolution. There is some dark material here, but hopefully it sheds some helpful light on who Homo sapiens really are. While chapter 1 was the introduction to Harari's book, chapters 2 and 3 form the first main section of his book. These chapters examine the relationship between Homo sapiens and the other animals in an attempt to comprehend what makes our species special. In Harari's view, you cannot have a serious discussion about the nature and future of humankind without beginning with our fellow animals. I agree with these statements 100%. Because Harari starts with the animals, I consider him a kind of kindred spirit. It's really impossible to understand our situation without considering what makes us different from animals and how we emerged from the animal kingdom. Or if you have a problem with the word emerged, let's just say that we are still animals, but we are certainly on a different path from the other animals and it is important to understand how our path is different and how we got started on it. The title of Chapter 2 is The Anthropocene, or The Age of Man. Harari refers to the last 70,000 years as the Age of Man because Homo sapiens became the single most important agent of change in the global ecology. Today the world is populated mainly by humans, And their domesticated animals. This is unprecedented. No single species has ever done anything like this before. And it is important to realize that this transformation isn't just in the last few centuries. Much of it happened even before agriculture was established. For me, knowing that humans caused mass extinctions even before they started agriculture is shocking. If the actions of our ancestors had that big an impact, what about what we're doing today? And this section is also shocking in a more disturbing way. We are treating the animals we have domesticated terribly. As Ferrari notes, we lock animals in tiny cages, mutilate their horns and tails, separate mothers from offspring, and selectively breed monstrosities but we shouldn't blame it all on our farmers. First of all, not all farms are like that. I know there are lots of good farms. As I drive across the prairies or visit rural towns in Europe, I see at least some cattle that are living relatively good lives, roaming the countryside, in large pastures, with shade, kind of like the bison would have in days gone by. Last year I took a three-day course on raising dairy goats. The goats and other animals at that farm are truly cared for, although they do have to work. My Uncle John passed away recently. He was a farmer and maybe a bit of a rough man. At his funeral, it was mentioned a couple of times how at peace his animals were. To the community, his gentle treatment of his animals was an important sign of what kind of person he was. That being said, the majority of meat we eat is raised on farms exactly like what Harari describes. And that's because that's the way we want it. We want the meat to be as inexpensive as possible without regard to the animal's welfare. I am thankful to Harari for calling out our deplorable treatment of our domesticated animals. We should realize, though, that many of the examples that Harari calls out are really new, They've only come into vogue in the past 50 years as we have intensified our industrial approach to farming. And the reality is, today most farmers simply can't remain in business unless they adopt these horrendous practices that we implicitly insist upon. Let's own up to this, take responsibility, and try to change it. And I'm encouraged to see that people are doing things. There are various organizations working to promote animal welfare. And individuals are asking more questions about the meat they are eating, and paying more for it if animal welfare is considered, or are becoming vegetarians or vegans. It is good to see people speaking up about this, but also being willing to make sacrifices and changes to their lifestyle to support animal welfare. The next section of Harari's book is on how organisms are algorithms. Scientific orthodoxy has settled on this fact. Organisms like humans or animals are viewed as nothing more than data-processing algorithms, similar to computer programs. Harari provides a great explanation of what algorithms are and why they make women want George Clooney. And although this is an important section of Harari's book, I'm going to skip over it for now. I'll come back to it later, but I'm going to keep going on his material on the animals for now. In the next section, Harari gets back to the relationship between humans and animals. He calls this section the Agricultural Deal. And he asks, How ancient farmers justified exploiting and subjugating animals to human desires and whims? He concludes that they developed new theistic religions to justify it and place themselves, and the gods, in a position of supreme importance. It is these religions that enables farmers to justify subjugating animals for meat, milk, or muscle power. In contrast, Rory says, hunter-gatherers had a special regard for animals, and says they were seldom aware of the damage they were inflicting upon the ecosystem. I think Harari's characterization of hunter-gatherers is idealized. Let's recall that hunter-gatherers would regularly hunt and kill animals. In addition, their hunting was intense enough that it led to the extinction of many species, like the woolly mammoth. How did they justify this behavior? This section of Harari's book reads like hunter-gatherers had nothing to justify or that they weren't smart enough to consider the possibility that killing animals could be problematic. When hunter-gatherers killed a mammoth, they were for sure fully aware of the impact their actions were having on the particular mammoth they were killing. So it is an interesting question to ask. How did the hunter-gatherers justify it? At the same time, it should be recognized that some farm animals had relatively happy lives living longer and in greater comfort than if they were in the wild. Indeed, a warm, mutually beneficial relationship can sometimes develop between humans and their domesticated animals. I own a cat. Her name is Simone. I suppose I have subjugated her for the purpose of making me feel happy. In response, I provide her with food, I clean her kitty litter, I buy her toys, and when the weather is nice, I take her for walks. I put a harness on her, and we walk to the park where she rolls around in the dirt and sniffs everything. If I don't take her for a walk, the look of expectation and disappointment on her face is difficult to live with. How do I justify owning Simone? On one hand, it is true that I have subjugated her for my own purposes, but at the same time it could be argued that she entrapped me and I am mostly her servant. She was a stray cat who lived around my wife's workplace in a rural setting. She was hungry and probably wouldn't have survived very long without entrapping some human caretakers. Some people even say that we rescued her. Probably the best way to look at our relationship is that we've entered into a mutually beneficial and satisfying relationship. Obviously not all animal domestication is as affectionate as pet ownership, but that doesn't mean we should ignore it. When we talk about domestication, companionship should be on the list next to milk, meat, and muscle power. And the mutually beneficial relationship does not pertain only to pets. Back in the day of the family farm or the Wild West, Warm, mutual relationships often developed between the cowboy and his horse, or a farmer and her cattle, just like it did for my Uncle John. Animal domestication has resulted in a spectrum of treatment for the animals we have domesticated. Harari has helpfully called out some of the most deplorable practices, which are unfortunately common practice today. But when talking about domestication in principle, we need to realize that there are other models. Getting back to the main point, though, I agree with Harari that farming societies had more to justify than hunter-gatherers did, but it is only by a degree. If we want to understand our own evolution, it does no good to idealize hunter-gatherers. As Harari notes at another point in his book, in terms of their character and what motivated them, they were basically the same as agricultural humankind, which were basically the same as us. That is why Harari says we can all find ourselves between the pages of the Bible, in the writings of Confucius, or within the tragedies of Sophocles and Euripides. Sure, our technology has changed, and so have our institutions, but we are fundamentally unchanged. So I agree with Harari's assertion that humankind switched to agriculture was pivotal and came with a variety of changes, including changes in religion. But I think it is even more important to talk about the aspects of religion that did not change. To do this, I would like to jump to the topic that Harari discusses in Chapter 4. In Chapter 4, Harari identifies storytelling as the key thing that separates humans from animals. We are storytellers. It's not just that we tell stories for fun. No, the stories we tell enable us to cooperate and to build communities that are much, much larger and better coordinated than other animals can. Stories are the key to the special ability of humans to cooperate that we discussed earlier. Given that our stories are a key separator of humans, from animals, I feel we need to bring it into this chapter, which focuses on the relationship between humans and animals. My first critique of Harari's book, which we discussed in Chapter 1, was that it does not take the problem of internal community violence seriously enough. And my second critique is related to it. It does not explore the emergence of the stories enough. How was it that these stories emerged? Why did the stories become so powerful that within a few thousand years we were building civilizations unlike anything the world had seen before? And is there a dark side to these stories? If the transition from hunter-gatherer to agriculture is significant, then the transition from pre-humans to homo sapiens is even more significant. Bipedal homids had existed for 4 to 7 million years before Homo sapiens arrived. Stone tools had been used for 3 million years. And Homo erectus emerged 2 million years prior to Homo sapiens. And yet they all remained insignificant with very little impact on their environment. Even though millions of years elapsed, nothing much happened until we emerged 70,000 years ago with our stories. So, what role did the stories play in this evolution? As we noted, the stories helped us to cooperate. Another way of saying this is that the stories help us overcome the problem of internal violence. So that's why my two critiques are highly interrelated. What were the first stories that humanity told? Well, it's a bit of a challenge because they did not write the stories down. In fact, spoken language would have developed for the purpose of better storytelling. So the first stories would not even have had what we know as languages to express them. But given that storytelling served an evolutionary purpose in helping us cooperate, there still is hope of getting at the gist of these early stories. Yes, Homo sapien communities that could tell more effective stories had an evolutionary advantage. Harari and I agree on this. So although we don't have copies of the original stories, given the key evolutionary role they played, we have access to a lot of stories that must be similar. We call these stories myths. Let's look at an example. Consider the myth of Python the water snake, from the Venda people of South Africa. Again, I am relying on the work of Rene Girard, like I did in episode one. I encourage you to read his work directly. But for now, let me tell you the story of Python. Python the water snake had two wives. The first wife knew who he was, but the second wife did not know, and she was not supposed to know. In the middle of the night, she would wake up drenched. The first wife tried to protect her husband's secret, But her rival was curious, and after a good deal of spying on him, she discovered the truth. Then all the rivers dried up. The only water left was at the bottom of the lake, in which Python had taken refuge. When they learned from the first wife of the reason for Python's disappearance, the old men decided that a beer offering should be prepared. Divination revealed that Python desired the company of a second wife. While the men were playing the flute, the young woman entered the water, carrying the beer offering in a basket. As the music grew louder, she disappeared, and then the rain began to fall, the rivers filled up, and all the people rejoiced. At first reading, you might think this is an odd story for the Vinda people to tell, and that it is nothing more than a bunch of nonsense. After all, how can a water snake be married to a human woman? Or how can a sacrifice of a young woman and some beer cause rain to fall? But we need to remember that our storytelling helped us cooperate and succeed. So how is this story helping the Venda succeed? What is really going on here? René Girard compared many myths and has identified several typical characteristics that are common across them all. By understanding this pattern, we can understand what is really going on in this story. So here is the general pattern First, there is some sort of disorder. The community is in a crisis. Next, one particular individual is at fault for the crisis. They have done something to cause the problem possibly something trivial, and it has had catastrophic consequences. In today's language, we might call them a scapegoat. The person blamed often has the preferential signs of victimage. That is, that we prefer strangers, or outcasts, or cripples, or deformed, or persons of very low, or possibly even very high standing. That is, they stand out from the group in some way, and are therefore... Vulnerable. Next, the scapegoat is killed, expelled, or eliminated somehow. And lastly, as soon as the violence is consummated, peace and order return to the community. So does the story of Python the water snake fit this uh, pattern? Well, there is a crisis. There is a drought. There is no rain and all the rivers have dried up. Famine has arrived or it will arrive soon. People are really suffering. And there is a criminal accusation. The second wife is accused of spending a lot of time with her husband, spying on him and discovering his secret. Now given that it's normal for a husband and wife to spend time together, this crime definitely fits the definition of trivial. And then there's the social standing. The victim is a woman and a second wife. So this means she's hierarchically inferior to the first wife, and it appears that the first wife played a role in identifying her as the problem. And clearly the men in the community are calling all the shots. So these signs speak to her lower standing in the community. And then there is the murder. The second wife is forced to walk into the water with a beer offering and drowns to death. And lastly, there's the happy resolution. The rains return and everyone rejoices. So the story follows the identified pattern. Given that it follows the pattern, what conclusions can we draw from this story? Well, this story is likely based on a real event. A young woman was unjustly blamed for causing the drought, she was drowned to death by her community. And lastly, this act of community violence helped the community get through the crisis it was facing, and by retelling this story, it reminded the community of the crisis they faced, how they resolved it, and that they were now safe. So did the murder of the young woman really cause the rain to fall? Based on our understanding of science, we know that that cannot be true. While we can't say for sure exactly what happened in the story, it was likely just a coincidence. It is possible, and likely, that the Venda had already made other sacrifices. For example, Python himself was already at the bottom of the lake. Python was likely an earlier victim in the drug crisis. This is the way homo sapiens roll. We keep on making sacrifices until one finally works. And I put works in quotation marks here. Of course the sacrifice cannot make it rain or resolve any other external threat. But it can hold off the community violence until the crisis is resolved. So in a sense the community was right. Their sacrifice did work, but they can never really admit the truth of what happened. Harari only mentions one myth In his chapter, it is the Mesopotamian Gilgamesh epic. This story contains some of the elements above. However, the Gilgamesh epic is likely much farther from the originating violent event. It could be a story about a story about a story. In myth, the farther a story is from the originating event, the more obscured the guilt of the community will be. The Venda story was likely very recent. They were very comfortable telling the story of the murder they committed. It is a story that can only be told by true believers. It is not hard for us to see through it, but they would have reasoned the sacrifice started the rain and brought them so much relief that their actions must have been justified. And the explanation they would have given was they must have been doing the will of the gods. Just like we find it difficult to argue with success, Their success would have been proof that they were doing the right thing. Nevertheless, even in the Gilgamesh epic, we can see that some of the same elements from the pattern are there, simply based on the parts of the story that Harari recounts in his book. So, firstly, the community is in chaos. The gods sent a great deluge to destroy the world. Afterwards, the gods became crazed with hunger and distress. A victim is not identified. Perhaps it was Utnapishtim. Utnapishtim is definitely singled out. The gods swarming like flies sounds very predatory. Maybe the gods are really the community in a desperate state. Animals are sacrificed. Or perhaps the act of violence to focus on here is the death of the entire community, which is destroyed in the deluge. And after the sacrifice, all is well. The crisis is resolved. But we don't have to look to African tribes or ancient Sumerian myths. We know from documented history that most human communities practiced ritualistic killing, a.k.a. sacrifice. It was a key religious rite. Why did they do this? Again, if you believe the theory of evolution you have to believe that this practice was somehow giving these communities a survival advantage. And the only reasonable explanation is that these community murders helped them deal with the problem of internal violence. In his book, Harari highlights the animal sacrifices practiced by ancient Israel and also the sacrifices performed by the two Noahs when they left the ark. By reading his book, you might come to believe that in agricultural societies, only animals were sacrificed. But we know this is not true. Human sacrifice was widely practiced, both of children and of adults. We see it in the Bible, where it was mostly condemned, although Abraham, the father of faith for Jews, Christians, and Muslims, was praised for being willing to sacrifice his son, but then sacrificing a ram instead. It was practiced by the Greeks. And we can look to their stories. Think of Agamemnon's sacrifice of his daughter, Iphigenia. In this case, there was no wind, and the ships couldn't sail without the wind. The sacrifice results in the wind starting again. But there was a problem. When he returned to Greece, his wife, Clytemnestra wasn't happy and had him murdered and sacrifice was practiced by the advanced societies encountered by European explorers. The examples aren't hard to find. I pulled the following example off of Wikipedia. The Aztec religion is one of the most widely documented pre-Hispanic cultures. Diego Duran, in the Books of the Gods and Rites, wrote about the religious practices devoted to the water god, Tlaloc and a very important part of their annual ritual included the sacrifice of infants and young children. According to Bernardito de Sagun, the Aztecs believed that if sacrifices were not given to Tlaloc, the rain would not come and their crops would not grow. Archaeologists have found the remains of 42 children sacrificed to Tlaloc in the offerings of the Great Pyramid of Tenochtitlan. In every case, the 42 children, mostly males around age 6, were suffering from serious cavities, abscesses, or bone infections that would have been painful enough to make them cry continually. Tlaloc required the tears of the young so that their tears would wet the earth. As a result, if the children did not cry, the priests would sometimes tear off the children's fingernails before the ritual sacrifice to make sure they cried. Passages like these are not easy to read. Clearly there is a lot more going on here in this religion than simply justifying their dominance over domestic animals. In order to understand who we are as humans, we need to come face-to-face with religions like this and see what we have in common with them. The Aztecs were not horrible people. Our tendency when hearing this story Will be to look for someone to blame for this horrifying practice of torturing and killing children. Maybe they had bad government, or the explorers and missionaries were telling misleading stories, or maybe religion itself is responsible for this. But the truth is, there's no one to blame but ourselves. We need to learn to see these kinds of practices as normal human behavior. These people were telling stories that helped them survive. By sacrificing these children, the Aztecs were attempting to keep at bay that most terrible of threats, internal community violence. Understanding the practice of sacrifice is key to understanding how we differ from the animals. In the animal kingdom, internal violence is managed through the dominant structure or the pecking order. We became humans when we adopted a new approach to managing internal violence. Humans manage internal violence through social institutions, such as the police, the judiciary, government, and religion. Of course, for early human societies, there was only one institution, religion. These religions established a set of taboos, incentives, rituals, and stories, that helped early human communities cooperate and survive. Given that the primary evolutionary role of religion was to manage internal violence, religion always contained elements of violence, such as human or animal sacrifice. There's a very simple psychology at play here. If the community participates in violence together, it helps prevent uncontrollable violence from infecting the community. And we haven't changed. This psychology is also our psychology. Although we don't participate in ritualistic murders today, our institutions still carry out violence based on this same principle, whether it is going to war or mistreatment of people within our own midst. Also, we can see this principle at work in our personal lives. We get along better with someone else if there is a common enemy. Often this is difficult to admit to ourselves, but it isn't that hard to see in others. For example, it won't take long to see this behavior when watching unsupervised children on the playground. How could Harari miss this relatively obvious fact about humanity and our evolution? Or why don't we study it in schools? We miss it for the same reason the Venda people miss the truth about their own violence. The sacrifice of the young woman in order for the rain to start was a completely unjustified community murder. But if the Venda people all believed it would start the rain, well, then they could get along for a little longer. After all, they found and punished the person responsible. Yes, humanity has evolved to lie to itself about its own violence. The more convincing the lie the better able the community was to get along. For human communities, self-deception, at least with regard to their own violence, has always been an evolutionary advantage. This is why it is still so difficult for us to clearly see our own role in the violence. We have evolved to turn a blind eye. Homo sapiens' approach to handling internal violence through institutional violence has enabled us to come a long way. At first, these stories just helped communities get through the various crises they were facing. But with time, elaborate civilizations developed. Like other inventions of humanity, our approach to handling our internal violence evolved to protect us from the immediate threats faced by their communities. But once invented, it went on to enhance humanity. It is truly astonishing what we have been able to accomplish, all based on this mechanism of controlling internal violence. But how much farther can we go with this approach? Is there a limit? This is something we will explore in future episodes. So let me summarize what we talked about in Episode 2. I agree with Harari that the shift to agriculture was monumental and it did lead to changes in religion. But what is more remarkable is what stayed the same. Human communities continued to rely on institutional violence and the lies, that is the stories, they told themselves about their own violence. Without these stories, human communities would not have advanced beyond what we see in our primate cousins. In the animal kingdom, internal violence is managed through the dominant structure or pecking order, and community sizes stay very small. In the human world, we rely on social institutions and the stories we tell to manage the violence. This is the religion that never changes blaming victims for our problems. That is how Homo sapiens do it. We still rely on these types of stories today. This is who we are as Homo sapiens. The stories we tell might have all sorts of different main characters, rituals, and prescriptions. Sometimes the stories include the gods, or the god, or no god at all. Regardless, the same fundamental psychology is at work behind the scenes somewhere. This is our religion, and the religion of our ancestors. Sure, there are lots of components to our religions. I'm not saying everything is the same, but we all rely on this psychology to cooperate. So it is always there. If we really want to build a better world, we need to face up to this so that we can implement appropriate strategies instead of just looking for someone new to blame. This episode has covered some dark material, but it is important. In earlier episodes, I have already tipped my hand that I believe evolution points in a hopeful and cooperative direction. But we can only get to the hope if we are really honest about who we are today and how difficult it is going to be to get past this. That's it for Episode 2. Thank you for joining, but before I close off this episode, let me say that I would love to hear from you. I have left my email address in the show notes. If you would like, please send me an email and let me know what you are thinking. What parts are resonating for you? Where do you have more questions? Otherwise, please join me for the third episode in this podcast, which focuses on Chapter 3 of Harari's book called The Human Spark. In this chapter, Harari asks the question... What is unique about Homo sapiens that has enabled them to dominate all the other animals? We have already started this conversation, but there is more to say. We will dive deeper into our special ability to cooperate flexibly. How did this unique ability arise? And given what we have discussed in this episode, is there a limit to this ability? And if so, what happens when we reach this limit? Please tune in for episode three.